The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. So today, this, uh, as some of you who've been around for a while know, usually around the solstices and equinoxes, we do a little recitation. It's one of the, we come out of the Buddhist, early Buddhism, Buddhist tradition, kind of Buddhism found in places like Thailand and Burma and Sri Lanka, Cambodia and Laos. And uh, it's sort of a more earthy, psychological form of Buddhism, this early Buddhism, really tuned in to this guy who lived 2,500 years ago that we refer to as the Buddha, who was just a human being who got really interested in, and he was a privileged human being, you know, evidently wealthy and had a lot of sort of good stuff. And yet he sort of saw the limitations of that. So it occurred to him, like, what to do with this issue of human suffering. And he spent his life contemplating that and then had some deep insight and shared it. So we're sort of following in these footsteps of a human being who... For whatever reason, we got sensitive to suffering, our own and the suffering around us, and it inspired us to take a more careful, close look at what are the causes for suffering and the causes for release. And that study, you know, that's really what Common Ground is about. So once a quarter, we do the refuges and precepts. It's a way of kind of putting that study front and center. And the way we talk about that traditionally is taking refuge. And so just taking a moment now, like, well, am I actually in need of a refuge in my life? I mean, if any of you are perfectly at ease and happy, and you got your act together, and you don't, uh, you're not complicit in anybody else's suffering, Right? Feel free to leave. <laughs> or <laughs> feel free to come to the front of the room. Because <laughs> for the rest of us, I'm guessing, you know, we don't have our acts together. We don't feel perfectly free or perfectly wise. And we don't feel, it doesn't seem to us that we're somehow not involved in causing suffering, planting seeds of suffering, that word karma that I talked about right at the beginning through our intentional thoughts and words and actions, we make messes all the time. And even if it's not so obvious how we're harming somebody externally or part of some systemic way that people are being harmed, we'll feel, if we're sensitive enough, we'll feel the impression of our grouchiness, our gossiping, our indifference to other people's suffering, not my problem, you know, that kind of attitude. We'll feel how that tightens, puts a squeeze on the heart. And and we get interested, like, oh, what's going on? What am I not seeing here? So this tradition is really characterized by a humility. Because without humility, we're not actually interested in looking inward. And we're looking inward because we care about this, not just our life, but this, this whole ocean of human beings doing what we do together, right? Living our lives together. We're in this world, 
clearly, it doesn't take much reflectiveness to realize that we're all affecting each other. There's no way to somehow, I mean, I totally get how we can think that way. I think that way sometimes, that, you know, I'm somehow apart, and yeah, the world's a mess, but it ain't my problem, Um, or there's nothing I can do about it. But to, and this is sort of what we practice when we sit down, you know, we put aside our 30 minutes in the morning, or if you're lucky, an hour, if you don't have much time, 10 minutes, 5 minutes, but whatever you've you have, you put aside some time and in that relative quiet in that one particular corner of a room in our apartment or our house, uncluttered if we can, pets away, children away, roommates away, cell phone completely, all the way shut down. <laughs> right? So we have that time, relatively safe time to see can I be in the swirl of the world? So it's not like a lot of people mistakenly think that when we sit or we go on a Buddhist meditation retreat, we're escaping the world. No, we're just doing our best to create suitable conditions so we can practice being right in the middle. I mean, people who think a Buddhist meditation retreat is like a spa, haven't done a Buddhist meditation retreat. I, and I'm always reminded, some of, some of you older folks in the room will remember probably reading Jack Kerouac, I forget which one, maybe On the Road, or anyways, one of his journals that got turned into a book. He was a sort of a early Buddhist sort of beatnik philosopher type. And uh, he had this thought, oh, I'm going to, apply for this job at one of the top of one of those fire watchtowers in the Cascade Mountains in Washington State, just me and the trees and God contemplating truth, you know. And he writes in his journal, uh, only to find, you know, old angry me, right? To find the habits of our own mind, the the emotional habits, mental habits, right? That's what we end up seeing when we sit down. And we create a relatively safe spot, sit in a comfortable way, in a way that supports alertness. And we find the momentum of our mind doing what the mind does and the momentum of emotional habits doing what they do. And all of what's been laid down in the body over these years, right? Like the body being the innocent victim of what the mind's been up to for these 61 years in my case, Right, one layer after another, one layer of impressions being laid down on the soft, vulnerable, innocent body. Right, because the body, in a way, is like nature. It's a little bit like what we're doing to the planet. We've been doing to the body, right? Mostly unconsciously, unaware of the pollutants <laughs> that have been stored up in the body by the way we think and the way we act and just choosing not to be aware. That's its own kind of insult for the body, to be in a body but unaware. Like today, it's 11.15, right? So you've been up for a while, all of us. How many moments in these several hours has there been an authentic 
enlivened, intimate awareness of body today. You know, it's a rare event. And that's a real tragedy. So when we do this recitation at the end this morning, this takes 10 minutes, we're going to be taking refuge in Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha. And for, you know, some of you that might sound really religious, but it's we, we like to use the Pali words because it helps us connect with a lot of people throughout history who have found this way of working with their mind really useful. But it's just code and it's really important for each of us to personalize the code so that question are we in need of a refuge if so what is our refuge what does it make sense that something outside of ourselves could actually be a refuge for our lives no i mean not to me at least right we'd like that we have a kind of childish imprint of the sort of proverbial parent who's going to have our back, take care of us. But then we grow up and we realize our parents are more screwed up than we are <laughs> or in the same ballpark, right? I mean, it's, that's just an interesting conversation to have with good friends. At what point do you remember realizing your parents weren't gods? You know, they're just people, suffering people. Right? And it's a real important point to remember from our upbringing. Maybe it was you were 40. I mean, some people never get it. Right? They, they die thinking their parents were superhuman instead of just... And we, and we carry that on with our teachers. We have that same kind of tendency to want to pro- project perfection or superhuman qualities on people, on politicians, right? But this maturing of human beings, it's like locating that there will never be a refuge outside of ourselves. doesn't mean there aren't wise people out there or people who are capable of moments of real kindness and real clarity. I certainly hope so. And I certainly have seen that in my life. There are people in moments who can be deeply wise and deeply kind. And in those moments, it can be real supportive, really great to kind of, tune into and learn from, be inspired by. But we don't ever expect them to be more than what they are. And even when we turn inward and we realize nothing out there is going to be a perfect refuge, nothing out there can really have my back, then we look inward and we see the same thing, basically, that we see out there. Like There are a lot of different tendencies in this mind and heart. Some of them are trustworthy and some of them aren't very trustworthy. Some of them are very childish. Some of them are just plain mean-spirited. Right? Anybody see mean-spirited tendencies in your own mind? If you haven't, you maybe should think you haven't looked carefully enough. <laughs> I mean, it's different. Some of our mean-spiritedness shows up as like self-hatred. Other people's mean-spiritedness may show up as being critical and judgmental and arrogant. You know, right? So it's We have different ways of expressing it. But we want to find what we see out there. We want to find it here. And we want to start noticing some of the threads of wholesomeness. Because that's what Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha, what we take refuge. They're these different aspects of our own heart and mind. We can see them in others, but mostly we want to learn to see them in ourselves. Buddha, that word, means awake. 
So we're getting interested, like, what quality in my own heart and mind that might somehow be related to the work, the word awake or clearly aware? Do I actually, through my life, through my experience in life, I've learned to really trust? Do you trust clarity? Do you trust clear seeing? Which, by the way, really relates, needs to relate to humility. We don't see clearly when we think we know. In fact, as some of you have heard me say, one of the best definitions for ignorance or delusion is thinking that we know. Because when we think that we know, almost for sure the mind is attached to an idea that has a fixed view. And as the Buddha and other wise folks have said, fixed views are always problematic. Even a so-called like politically correct view. But if the mind is fixed on it, or a really universal view that you know all human beings, all beings deserve justice. Right? But the fixedness of it makes it kind of, um, it sort of freezes it. And so then it's no longer real. Real understanding is fresh in the moment. It's not an idea that we're holding, the mind is holding to. It's an understanding that's arising fresh because it's arising from being intimate here and now. And we can have that understanding here and now that human beings deserve justice, right? Or something like that, that maybe we resonate with that view. But then it's fresh, it's not a fixed view. So that's that Buddha means that sort of the freshness of being awake. It's not theoretically being awake or uh, me liking the idea of being awake. The refuge is being awake, being open-hearted, sensitive, interested, alert. Now, right? So Buddha is only only arises now. Never arises theoretically or conceptually. It's being awake, being sensitive, being open now. And what are we open to? That's the second refuge. Dharma, or the Pali word is Dhamma, right? So two languages from ancient India, Sanskrit and the Pali language. So the early teachings were recorded in the Pali language, and then later traditions recorded the teachings of the Buddha and Sanskrit. So there's some similarities but you often, more often hear the word dharma in the States, um, but uh, where the early Buddhism tradition uses the word dhamma. But anyway, the important thing is, what does that word point to? And that's just so the Buddha means awake, being awake, being open, being sensitive to what's moving the way it is. So that's what dharma means, the way it is. Again, not conceptually, but actually immediately the dance, the wildness of what's happening here, everything, both what's felt and seen and everything that's not seen, all of it, whatever's conditioning things, the moment, all of this is what we call Dhamma. So the question is, does that resonate in our heart to take refuge, Buddha knowing Dhamma? This capacity, not necessarily a very strong tendency in our mind, but we can strengthen it with practice to be awake, to be open-hearted, to be sensitive, to see clearly, and to see clearly the way that it is. 
And to always be understanding, oh yeah, this is how it is now. It doesn't really matter whether I want this moment to be the way that it is or whether I like the way that it is or I don't like it or I don't even get it. It's ambiguous. The point is, even if the moment internally, externally, subtle, gross, even if the moment is confusing, it's our life right now, this moment. And we don't really have options. Like what's ever here being seen, felt, it's already here. So the question is, are we going to wake up to that? Or are we going to have that habit of having a problem with it? Like, And so therefore I'm going to try to fix it. I'm going to try to deny it. I'm going to be distracted. I'm going to blame somebody. Or are we going to meet it? Is Buddha going to meet Dhamma? Is Buddha going to have a healthy relationship with Dhamma? Is that a refuge? Like, is that something to live our life around, that value of Buddha knowing Dhamma? So we take refuge in that. Like people who are interested in these teachings coming down through the centuries from the Buddha were people who find that a very powerful, useful, functional refuge. Buddha knowing Dhamma. Being awake to the way that it is. Seeing clearly what's moving mental activity, physical activity, internally, externally, what's in motion here and now. The marriage of intimacy and non-clinging. Because if I have an agenda to make something happen, I can't see clearly. Now, a lot of people wrongly think that, oh, so the Buddha is advocating for passivity. Because if all he's talking about is Buddha knowing Dhamma, then who's going to do anything? Who's going to make the world a better place or feed the children or whatever? But remember, even though it is advocating this moment, Buddha knowing Dhamma is hands off, part of that hands off is letting the personality, letting this life, letting the world do its thing. But that movement of your life you could say, or the movement of your personality is now being grounded in Buddha knowing Dhamma. So what you say, the choices you make, it's, they're going to arise because what you're taking refuge in is not, not doing anything or you're not taking refu- refuge in doing something. You're leaving that to nature. Whether you, What you do, what you don't do, the choices you make, the choices you don't make, you're giving up on that. You're neither for action nor against. What you're saying is, action's going to happen because nature is always in motion, including the nature of this body and mind. It's always in motion. Like Even if you choose to sit on the couch and watch TV for the rest of your life, that's action. That's as, that's, you know, as much action as growing a garden or saving the world. But the question more the Buddha discovered is more where does action arise? What's best? Where is it best for action to rise out of? And he realized through his own study of his life from this intimacy, Buddha knowing Dhamma. And then we let it rip, so to speak. And that last thing, that letting it rip, that compassionate action is what we call Sangha. That's the third refuge. So we take refuge in Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha. 
wakefulness, being intimate with the way it is, and that enlightened, wise, compassionate action that flows out of that intimacy of Buddha knowing Dhamma. It's not strategic. It's not like I have a plan to save the world or a plan to raise my kids or the, a plan to sort of have a healthy relationship with my partner or to show up for these issues that move my heart in the world, the suffering that I want to address. It's not like we have a plan, but it's not like we don't have a plan. The refuge, though, is I don't know how to do my life, but I know it helps to be Buddha knowing Dhamma. And then I'll see what kind of partner I become. I'll see what kind of activist I become, what kind of citizen I become, what kind of employee I become, what kind of, you know, whatever I become. And this is for all of us, each of us, to check out. And if you have a better plan, like something that works better as a refuge to orient your life around, then live it. And so when we come together, especially these, you know, the four times a year when we do this recitation, we're remembering like wherever you are in this sort of spectrum, like, yeah, I have a lot of confidence in that or I'm just getting to know it. You know, we just sort of, oh, yeah, I am going to take refuge in Buddha Dhamma Sangha, being awake to the way it is in my life, moment by moment, and noticing the Sangha, the enlightened action, the compassionate action that more and more seems to be moving. Like where we notice, we say something, and we go, wow, that was really skillful. I could have never strategically figured out that that was the right thing to do or say. But there it is. I did it. I said it. And I'm glad that I could have been that skillful in that situation because in the past, I don't think I was that skillful. I wonder why that happened. Oh, maybe it ha- has something to do with this valuing of Buddha knowing Dhamma, being awake to the way it is, being mindful. And then the last part of the recitation, it's just the stabilizing around, grounding around this profound value of non-harming. And the Buddhist point here, in Buddhism we call it sila, this commitment to non-harming. Ahimsa is kind of a word in Sanskrit. Um, It's just this basic understanding that if we're living our life taking advantage of others, causing harm, we can't really do this work of Buddha knowing Dhamma and realizing moments at least of Sangha, that sort of free, compassionate, wise action that if we want to do spiritual work, we have to align our lives with non-harming. I mean, you can try being a cheat, being aggressive, you know, taking advantage of other people and having this spiritual life and see how it works. But, or you can take it from those who have come before and realize it doesn't work. That the sila, the kind of ethical conduct part of spiritual life, is really the foundation. And it's it, be on the lookout for any of us thinking, oh yeah, I've, I'm, I have pretty good ethics in my life. You know, I haven't shot anybody recently. I haven't... Because th- that's that kind of thinking that we're over the hump, we're good enough. Because p- 
part of this commitment to non-harming is this uh, humility of knowing we don't see all the ways. There's no way to be a human being without being part of cycles of suffering. So we really have to own that and find that the stabilizing comes from valuing non-harming, not from getting to the end where we're perfect, but like that's it's a really enlivening tension. Like, how do you have an intimate relationship without taking advantage of your partner? What does that look like? You have to live that. Or how do I, as a white male, live in society in a way that doesn't perpetuate cycles of suffering? You know, it would be really arrogantly stupid to think, I got it. I'm done. You know, I figured out how to live as a white man. As opposed to like being really curious, uh, using the the value of non-harming to be really curious in all my moments in my life, right? So you see the value of non-harming strips away a lot of arrogance because it's impossible to be a living being. I mean, we're in a world where life eats life. How is this going to work? So it's not about being perfect where you're not causing harm. Even if you're a vegan, you're causing harm. (laughs) There's no way to not cause harm. But the tension is really good. Like the valuing of it is really powerful. So those are the two things we're going to do, and now we're going to do it. And then uh, uh, Sharon will talk about it at the end when we do announcements, but there's an optional potluck for everyone, so consider staying. So this is, um, where is this? Near the end of our chant books. On page, here it is, page 35. Some of us use this gesture. You can use it. It comes from the East, although I did it a lot as a Catholic growing up. But it's just a kind of a, I think, a universal gesture of respect and gratitude. So use it if you want. The very beginning there, in sort of the middle of the page, the Namotasa is just uh, honoring our teacher, the Buddha. We do that three times. And then we'll do the refuges, Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha, three times. That Dutiampi just means for a second time. Tatiampi just means for a third time. And then we'll do the five precepts and we'll read some reflections on these trainings and non-harming from Thich Nhat Hanh, one of our respected elders in the Buddhism. He's a Vietnamese Buddhist monk who came to the West because he was a peace activist during the Vietnam War and all sides kicked him out. So fortunate for us in the West, he became a many-decade wonderful teacher. So these are his reflections. So we need five people from the community to read each of the five reflections on page 36 and 37. Who wants to do the first one? Someone want to read that for us out loud, nice and loud? Thanks, Sharon. And then, Steve, why don't you do number two? Someone want to do number three? Yeah, Amy. And then number four, Helen. And you want to do five, Sherry? Great. Good. So let's do this together. I'll ring the bell. And we honor our teacher, the Buddha. Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa. Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa. 
namo tassa bhagavato arhato samma samputassa buddhang saranang gacchami tamang saranang gacchami sangang saranang gacchami dutiyampi buddhang saranang gacchami Dutiampi damang saranang gachami. Dutiampi sangang saranang gachami. Tatiampi budang saranang gachami. Tatiampi damang saranang gachami. Tatiampi sangang saranang Gachami. I take refuge in the Buddha, trusting inherent peace and freedom of a heart free from clinging. So just reflect on that wakeful, peaceful quality of being open. And now the second. I take refuge in the Dharma. Trusting mindful awareness of the way things are. So Buddha meeting Dhamma now, just reflecting on that right here and now. Being intimate. There's a real possibility. And now the third refuge. I take refuge in the Sangha, trusting those with wisdom and compassion who show us the way. And of course, were we see action in ourselves that show us the way, not just in others. Good, let's do the five precepts now. We'll do the Pali language, then English, and then we'll listen to someone in the community read Thich Nhat Hanh's comments. So the first, Panati Pata where amani sikapadang samadhyami. I undertake the training to refrain from harming living beings. Aware of the suffering caused by the destruction of life, I am committed to cultivating compassion and learning ways to protect the lives of all beings. I am determined not to kill, not to let others kill, and not to condone any act of killing in the world, in my thinking and in my way of life. This is the first of the five mindfulness trainings. I vow to study and practice it. Take a few seconds and just imagine what that can look like in our lives directly. And then the second. Adina dana where amani sikapadang samadhyami. I undertake the training to refrain from taking that which is not given. Aware of the suffering caused by exploitation, social injustice, stealing, and oppression, I am committed to cultivating loving kindness and learning ways to work for the well being of all beings. I will practice generosity by sharing my time, energy, and material resources 
belong to others. I will respect the profit of others, but I will prevent others from profiting from human suffering or the suffering of other species on the earth. This is the second of the five mindfulness trainings I vow to study and practice. So again, just reflecting in our life, we may not go and burglarize a, another person's home, but we're in this very complex economic system. And how can we undertake the training to refrain from taking what hasn't been freely given to us? And moving on to the third now. Kame sumichachara ver amani sikapadang samadhyami. I undertake the training to from causing harm through sexual misconduct. Aware of suffering caused by sexual misconduct, I am committed to cultivating responsibility and learning ways to protect the safety and integrity of individuals couples, families, and society. I am determined not to engage in sexual activities without love and commitment. To preserve the happiness of myself and others, I am determined to respect my commitments and the commitments of others. I will do everything in my power to protect children from sexual abuse and to protect couples and families from being harmed by sexual misconduct. This is the third of the five mindfulness trainings. I vow to study and to practice it. So we take a few seconds. We're all sexual beings, each of us in our own ways. Just how to have an honest, open relationship with those energies without causing harm. And on to the fourth. Musawada where amini sika padang samadhyami. Training to refrain from false and harmful speech. Aware of the suffering caused by unmindful speech and the inability to listen to others, I'm committed to cultivating loving speech and deep listening in order to bring joy and happiness to others and relieve others of their suffering. Knowing that the words can create happiness or suffering, I am determined to speak truthfully with words that inspire self-confidence, hope, joy, and hope. I will not spread information that I do not know to be certain and will not criticize or condemn things of which I am not sure. I will refrain from uttering words with the intention of causing division or discord. I am determined to make efforts to reconcile and resolve all conflicts, however small. This is the fourth and the fifth mindfulness training. I vow to study and practice it. So reflecting on how we use speech. Remembering sometimes speaking truth causes people to be uncomfortable. That doesn't mean it's unskillful. It's really more about the intention to speak in ways that are deeply healing, even if it causes an initial disturbance or discomfort. 
And now the fifth, the final one. Sura Maria Majapamaratana Where Amani Sikapadang Samariami I undertake the training to refrain from the misuse of intoxicants. Aware of the suffering caused by unmindful consumption, I am committed to the cultivation of good health, both physical and mental, for myself, my family, and my society by practicing mindful eating, This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org.